The scripture says to rejoice with those who rejoice. And graduates, we do rejoice with you on behalf of your family, your church family. We are so grateful to God for the accomplishment and reaching this milestone in your life. You have been nurtured in love and gospel truths, and we look forward to seeing what this God has in store for you for this next season of your lives. This morning on this special occasion for our graduates, I would like to return our minds to the importance of seeing the unseen kingdom of heaven and consider how you can use your life's influence, graduates, for God's glory and for the good of others in extending his kingdom. The kingdom concept is a descriptive way to unpack what it means for us to live in this world under the rule of the one who created it. Jesus uses the parables of which we have been learning to connect with or weed out his followers. He is wanting his disciples to use their God-given imagination to see the unseen kingdom of God in all of its beauty. It's like he's holding up this diamond, this multi-faceted diamond, and he's wanting to explain by comparisons how beautiful it is for us to see. And if you see it as such, you will want to behold it, and you will want to gaze at it, and to look at it, and allow your heart to worship at the beauty of the gospel. If you are turning your Bibles now to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this morning I want to use our time together to parachute into this gospel beauty as Paul sees it. And I particularly want to contemplate how this kingdom is to be advancing through our lives, through these jars of clay. Uh, Very briefly, to understand the context of this passage, after Paul saw the glory of Christ, he was compelled to go and to share and to be able to tell others about what he received from Jesus. In Acts 18, we can read his experience in Corinth. During that visit, there were many that came to believe in the message of the gospel. Yet there was also opposition. And in the midst of that, He has a dream, and Jesus speaks to him, and he says, I want you to continue on preaching the message, even as a result of what you are suffering, what you are experiencing, because I have many in this city that need to hear the life-changing message of the gospel. So Paul continues on for about a year and a half. He has a special relationship with the believers at Corinth as he continues to get reports from them. And he writes, and then he actually makes a visit to be able to reprove them, to call them to repentance. And in this letter, we get that uh, this context is telling us that they had repented, yet there's still questions. And he is writing this letter to be able to explain the suffering that's going on in his life is authenticating the message of salvation. Many were wanting to discount Paul's message because they saw his suffering and they thought that he was weak. But he is making his case in this book that it is actual suffering for the faith that God is seen as strong. Paul is following up on what Jesus taught about the kingdom of heaven and how the kingdom is to be advancing. And graduates, this is an important truth for you to be able to know at this day and age. Because in the day and age in which we live, you're going to be facing all types of suffering and pains as you live out the gospel in this world in which we live. And I pray that God has put iron into your souls as you have been biblically grounded to be able to face the things that you'll be able to face. I know that God will use you to advance his kingdom, and I look forward to being able to see 
how he's going to use you in great ways. This kingdom advances in a way that we don't think it typically would. It advances through suffering, suffering for the cause of Christ. If you'll join me now in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now that your Holy Spirit would do his work and that you would take over. I pray that you would open our eyes to see the beauty of the gospel. I pray, Father, that you would allow us to see that our pain is part of your plan. And I pray that you'd give us faith to see how you can use our weaknesses to demonstrate your power. Lord, I recognize that we are walking this morning on tender ground. So, Lord, I pray that you would allow your word to speak and that your Holy Spirit would bring comfort and encouragement, love, and support to every one of us as we contemplate your message from your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chapter 4 starts off with a therefore. And when you see that, good Bible students ask, what's it there for? All right. This is the way so much of Paul's writing is structured. He gives us these indicatives, what God has done on our behalf, and then he gives us the imperatives, what we're to do as a result of what he has given us. And what God has done, Paul has just made his case in chapter 3, is to institute the new covenant. He has put his spirit, the Lord, inside us and written his law on our hearts, and it is glorious. He says there in chapter 3, you thought the law came with glory, and it did. But it was a fading glory compared with the glory of the spirit that is an ever-increasing glory. Now, the more you behold of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the more you become like him. So point number one there this morning is we have to see the Lord's glory through the message of the gospel. I love how Milton Vincent puts it in the gospel primer. If you have not read that, I encourage you to pick it up and to marinate in it. That book was used in my life to be able to help me calibrate to the message of the glories of the gospel in such a special way, and I'm so grateful for its message. But he says this, the glory of God is the most powerful agent of transformation available to mankind. It is so powerful that it transforms those who merely gaze upon it. But where do I find God's glory to behold? Indeed, the glory of God is revealed throughout all of creation. But the Bible indicates that outside of heaven, the glory of God in its thickest density dwells inside the gospel. Consequently, as I habitually gaze upon the glory of the Lord revealed in the gospel, I can know that actual deposits of God's glory are attaching themselves to my person and transforming me from one level of glory to another. This transformation is deep and abiding and unfading, displays the glory of God to others. Graduates and to our church, this is our mission now. To be able to see his glory is transformational to every one of us. And it brings us hope. Paul says with that therefore in verse 1, 
since you have the glory of Christ indwelling you, by the mercy of God, you are not to lose heart. He says the same thing if you look down in verse 16. So, it's the same Greek word as therefore as he starts off the chapter. So, we do not lose heart. It's the key to understand the point of this passage. He is writing to exhort us not to lose heart. Now, why would he say that? If you don't count, if you don't counter the pain that you experience in this life, pain that we, every one of us have experienced, if you don't counter that, we will lose heart. You have to preach to yourself. This world is filled with pains. But in your pain, if you'll let it, with eyes of faith, you can see God has a plan. And that's point number two. And really, the message that God has put on my heart to convey. Look with me back at chapter 1 in 2 Corinthians. Look back at chapter 1 as Paul is testifying to the believers at Corinth. He says something powerful, and I want us to catch it because it's crucial for us to be able to understand. Verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of their affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we had felt that we had received a sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that by many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. God's plan is to make us rely on him in such a way that his glory is seen. He does that as his people endure and persevere through the suffering that we experience. As we cling to him, as we cling to him in our pain until he becomes our only strength. Your pain is not in vain. God went through great pains to assure us of that. We just sang about it, how great the pain of searing loss. The father turned his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one brought many sons to glory. We have to make this connection, church. You will never understand the suffering in this world apart from the cross. That is where God was so moved out of his love for me and you that he stepped into our pain caused by sin and reversed the consequences of the curse. His pain now is our gain. I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. It's page 613 in your pew Bible. As I want us to be able to remember and to reflect, this is so important for us to see in this context. As you're going through the pain and the suffering that you're enduring, or what you will endure, this is God's supernatural means to be able to bring hope 
to every one of us. And I pray that it just falls on our ears like therapy. May you receive this as God's blessed word. He was despised in verse 3 and rejected by men. It says of Jesus that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Listen to what he went through. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment... He was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to open grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days." The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It was out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Whatever your pain is, you are to endure by looking at the one who has endured for you. And let me assure you that our pain that we're experiencing now is only temporary. You know how I know that? It's because he is risen. He is risen. If Christ had not raised, your faith is futile, and we'd still be in our sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has risen from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful. Amen? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil, your pain is not in vain. He is risen. And that is what you're to be able to dwell on. Paul would go on to say that it is through this pain and suffering that he came to know Christ more deeply. As a matter of fact, he even said that he would gladly lose everything in order to know Christ more. An unbelievable statement. Paul says in Philippians, Indeed, I'd count everything as loss for the surpassing power of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And here's what he says, his purpose statement. That I may know him. I am willing to suffer that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Oh, that's how Paul dealt with the suffering and the pain. Let me know you more. Allow this pain to take me to my knees so I can see you in all your glory. In our suffering, we can allow our minds to feel what he felt and become him like him in his death. When you're able to face it and you're able to cry out to God and ask why, it doesn't make any sense. And when God brings you to the place where you say, it's not my will, but yours be done. That's the place where he begins to break through. Suffering will break you. Then if you allow him, he will lead you. As you were led in that brokenness, God releases the sweet fragrance of Christ. You'll turn back just a page and you see in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like many, like so many that peddlers of the word of God, but men of a sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This is a powerful word picture that Paul is using, and the depth of this analogy that he uses is rich. A Roman triumph was an honor given to a general that had conquered a foreign enemy in land, and it was something to behold. If you read in the history, you begin to understand the significance and the pomp and the circumstances that Rome would go through to be able to honor their general that had won land and the defeated enemies. 
It was to create and demonstrate Rome's prowess and as a victor, not only by parading the spoils of war, but also leading in triumph the most important leaders and intimidating their soldiers, now presented as conquered slaves. This is the image Paul is using to be able to demonstrate how we are to be led. The role of those in triumph was to reveal the glory of the one who had conquered them. Now think about that image. As an enemy of God's people, God had conquered Paul at his conversion on the road to Damascus and was now leading him as a slave of Christ. That was his favorite term that he used of himself. In order that Paul may display or reveal the majesty, the power, and the glory of God, his conqueror, he chooses this word picture that describes him both as belonging to a great victor and as a conquered enemy whose service to the king is to suffer and to look weak and to even die for him led in triumphal procession as a defeated foe in service to the king. Another part of the triumph was that when they would come through, they would burn incense into the city. And that incense was the sin of victory to the soldiers, and at the same time, it was the sin of death to the slaves that were marching to their impending death. Paul is giving thanks to God because he recognizes that it is through this defeat of self that God is using to spread the fragrance of life to the living. And at the same time, anguish for those that can't stand the message of the cross. The gospelized life is like a contagion, bringing life to the living and death to the dying. That's how the kingdom advances. It's not as you think it would but it does reflect the path of our Savior as he releases the beautiful fragrance of Christ and what he's done in your life. So he continues, verse 2, but we have renounced disgraceful, disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He's given his case. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. How does, the, how does the enemy do it? Look at verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The same God who created the world, who spoke light into existence, that reveals himself as light of the world, is the same God that wants his light in you shining forth through these jars of clay. It's interesting, we can read back about the glory of God that Moses sought to see in Exodus 33. Moses cries out, you remember, show me your glory. And God answers and says that he will make his goodness pass before him as he proclaims his name, but he can't see his face. God says, you cannot see my face, for no one will 
see me, no one that can see me and live. And here we have in the New Testament the glory of the God in the face of Jesus Christ so he can be seen. And one must see this glory in order to live. 1 John 5 says, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you that you may believe in the name of Jesus Christ, that you may know that you have eternal life. You don't have to hope so. You can know so. Jesus is life. He is this treasure that comes to inhabit these jars of clay. And that's the next point. We are to see his power through our weaknesses. Look at verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. We're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So while death is at work in us, life is happening in you. We are to embrace our weaknesses and our frailty because it is in our weaknesses that the light of the gospel can be manifested. Paul learned this lesson as he pleaded with the Lord to remove the thorn in the flesh. Remember that passage a little later in Corinthians? We're told this. Paul, after hearing the word, goes from complaining to boasting as he hears Jesus say, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. So then he begins to boast. He says, I will boast all the more gladly now in my weaknesses, because my weaknesses now become the platform for his greatest strengths. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, because when I am weak, then I become strong. His power is going to be displayed through your weaknesses. People don't need to see that you got it all together. They need to see the reality of your faith when hardships show up. That's how God uses your life for his glory. Rather than try to be strong and keep it all together, what if instead you embraced the fact that you're weak and you're hurting? That's the place where God shines his light. Verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and we also speak. Paul here quotes Psalm 116. As the writer says, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. He then thanks God for redeeming his life and testifies. 
The redemption that you will experience on the heels or enduring suffering is the very thing that God will use to be able to allow you to testify to his grace. And that's what Paul is doing here. Verse 14, what he believes that can't stay contained, he says, is this truth. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise him up. And all who believe in this message will be together before his very presence. It's the reality of the resurrection that is in his mind that empowers him to endure. And it is that reality that you have to be able to draw on in the midst of your suffering and pain. We need to live in light of the empty tomb. Amen? You remember our Easter message? I hope it's still ringing in your heart of all the implications of the empty tomb. We need to get up every day being thinking and being thoughtful. How does my life change as a result of the victory that we have in Jesus Christ? Amen? In this verse, he has given us a passionate appeal for the why. That he is able to deal with the affliction, the crushing, the perplexment, the persecuted being struck down. He is able to endure the present because he knows his future is secure. Your future as a believer in Christ is secure. This is what we're to draw down on when we're suffering. Either suffering from being persecuted and struck down, receiving unjust treatment, or suffering with sickness, or depression, or death. We suffer in order to be able to increase our faith. And that's what the enemy will do in the midst of the suffering and the pain. He will want you to doubt your faith. When you go through times like this, graduates, when you face times where you're going to have to suffer and you're called to endure, the way that you do it is you be mindful of God. The scripture says in 1 Peter, for this is a gracious, gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ suffered once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God. Aren't you grateful that he suffered on your behalf? Aren't you grateful? Aren't you grateful? I had this flashback. Am I here by myself? I was here all by myself yesterday preaching the same thing. Christ endured to bring us to God. Think about that. He persevered in order to bring us to God. And that is exactly what Paul is saying. And it was God's grand purpose, and it still is. Look at verse 15. For it is for all your sake that grace, as grace extends, more people... As grace extends to more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Do you see that, church? 
as you're full of thanksgiving, as God brings you through those times of trial, it radiates through your life and others go, what is, what is with you? How are you able to hold it together in a time like this? And when that happens, it gives all the God praise. It gives him glory. And more people begin to say, I need to know the God that you know, that has been your refuge, that has been your rock. That is our task, church. We may not like it, but that's what God has called us to, to extend the grace, to take the grace that we received and extend it to others. The treasure that we have is meant to be shared. We shouldn't hoard it. We should hail it, and we should declare it for God's glory and our own joy. As we humbly accept that message and we draw down on our faith in those moments, God will use it to display himself. That is what a watching world needs to see. That's what your coworker needs to see. It's what your neighbor needs to see. It's what your spouse needs to see. It's what your kids need to see. It's a supernatural display of God's goodness. As more and more people experience his redeeming grace, they will give thanks to him, and they will glory in the God who created them. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Look at verse 16 and 17. In the midst of this, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Though this outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Oh, (laughs) y'all, have you seen this happen? I've seen this happen. And it is an amazing thing to see. As you see this outer shell begin to waste away, and you see the life of Christ radiating, it is one of the most powerful. puts iron in your soul. Paul would say, the sufferings that are in this world are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that is coming. That's how you do it. You see the unseen glories that are awaiting you, and they're not even worthy, Paul says. What I'm experiencing here is not even worthy to be compared to what is there. Oh, it takes eyes of faith to see it this way. But God will give you that. His word says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I pray today that God has imparted faith to his people. We're not to look at the things that are seen but the things that are unseen. Will you join me in prayer?
Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your incredible plan to redeem your people that had gone astray, that had run away from the very creator that had created him in his image. Lord, in your mercy and your grace, you came to rescue us. You put an inf- gloriously plan in place to be able to redeem your creatures, to set us free, to give us hope. And Lord, we delight in that glorious message of the gospel. So Lord, we humbly accept the pain that is in our life as a part of the plan. We know that you've come to reverse the consequences of the curse. And so when we look at that pain, Lord, to help us to put up the cross, to be able to know that's where your mercy and love and justice met. And may we cling to that. May we cling to you, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, I pray that you would do your supernatural work of comfort upon your church. For those of us that are grieving, Lord, I pray that this gospel truth, like the sacred salve, like ointment, Father, would fall over us and that you'd wash us, that you'd restore us, that you would give us hope, that you would draw us close to you in the midst of the suffering so that we can know you more. And Lord, that you'd use our suffering as a means to testify to your grace and your mercy and may others see it and may drawn to you to give you thanks for the creator God that you are. We pray this all in your precious son Jesus' name. Amen.